Ironheart Canning is your quality leader in mobile canning. Ironheart gives you a turnkey solution to can beverages at your production site and also offers options through a network of small to mid-sized co-packers. You can also source your packaging and materials through us to make it a true one-stop shop. We offer no minimums and options to fill a variety of can sizes to meet your packaging needs. Whether you are a brewery, distillery, winery, or non-alcoholic producer, with over 250 million cans filled, we are your experienced canning solution. If you would like to learn more about our capabilities and services, please visit ironheartcanning.com or email us at info at ironheartcanning.com. We look forward to hearing from you. Cheers. Hey everyone and Andrew, thank you so much for this great opportunity to present to the Craft Beer Professionals Network. Um, what an honor. I'm a big fan of the work that you do and just the amazing passion of this group. So for all of you that get an opportunity to listen to this, um, first and foremost, I want to thank you for your time and attention today to a really cool topic that I have uh, journeyed far and wide to get to in my 18 years in the craft brewing industry. So I'm excited for the opportunity to present to all of you today and engage you uh, about non-alcoholic beer. So um, let's dive right in. Uh, today's topic is how to make zero your biggest asset. So I like to be a little contrarian in my approach, but no one would really think of zero as an asset. But what we're going to talk about today is how in this very interesting and um, unusual time in craft beer, how to maximize opportunities in your business to your customers and to create ongoing excitement for this rapidly growing category that is alcohol-free and non-alcoholic beer. So wherever you are today, thank you for joining. Um, and just a brief introduction, if you if you didn't see it, is you know non-alcoholic beer sales are trending. I'm sure no matter uh, whether you've enjoyed one or not, you've seen uh, in the news that uh, it's across the board, non-alcoholic and alcohol-free beer, wine, spirits, and uh, functional beverage sales are up. But it's important for you not only to stand understand you know just not just the why that is but what what can you do about it if you know previously you'll we'll see in this talk today that a lot of these technologies for producing these beverages and even knowing more about the customer to offer them was really unavailable and for the first time ever not only are consumers very very willing and able to do uh, to engage in these but you as a business owner are able to produce them yourself if you so desire no matter what your budget is so we're going to talk about that today. But I also want to talk about some other cool stuff, like what is NA beer? What are the definitions of it? If you're wondering about that. Also, just a brief history um, and a little bit about the market, as well as some of this actual process technology. And then I'll just sort of end with some key points and actionable takeaways. So um, we'll get right into the agenda for today. And then I'll just do a little bit of an introduction of myself and the company. Um, so, oh, hi, Josh. Welcome. Uh, Josh, I will just, uh, Lindsay just commented. Uh, thank you, Josh. He was one of our very first uh, certifications that we issued through, my, through our program. So look forward to, to mentioning that in a second. Um, all right. So our agenda for today, we're going to go through an introduction of 
uh, my company, Aficionado Certification Program. Um, so I'll just do a little plug on that, but then we'll dive right into the great material, which is let's talk about the category overview, again, history, production, and then really actionable, actionable implementation for your business. So very excited to share that with you. So again, my name is Megan Anderson. Um, I am the founder and CEO of Aficionado. So what is Aficionado? The A and the F um, actually at the beginning of Aficionado are meant to convey alcohol-free aficionados. So I was very intrigued about in the category and developed aficionado as the world's very first certification platform dedicated to alcohol-free and non-alcoholic processes and products, and really the entire ecosystem of alcohol-free and non-alcoholic uh, you know, beverages, including the principles of mindful drinking. So I really wanted to, to capture the changing consumer behavior in the market that was driving the growth in the category. Um, this was developed by myself along with other leading industry experts in the space, uh, with makers, distributors, and uh, other industry academic experts. And our platform is really built to empower this in-depth education to demonstrate the opportunity of the category, aka how to make zero your biggest asset. Um, I, you know, myself and my team, we really believe that this is just a vital resource for organizations or individuals that are expanding um, into the category because ultimately, uh, for me, in my heart of hearts, this is a socially sustainable initiative that continues to um, provide opportunities for people to connect over great beverages, no matter what the percentage of ABV is in the glass. So hopefully uh, that resonates with some of you uh, here today. So a little bit about me, uh, there's a picture on the screen. So if you're listening to audio only, you won't be able to see it, but I am a big fan of transformation and I always have been. So there's just a, a photo here of me in 2019. Um, I'd spent about 17 years in the craft brewing industry as a beer educator, uh, a hops professional, um, and a sales, uh, a sales uh, manager with the Boston Beer Company. Um, those things had me, uh, in an environment where I was consuming a lot of beer every day because, you know, when you're educating and teaching people and certifying them to become Cicerones, I uh, was leading classes, uh, in that regard, um, alcohol and consumption was a, a really normal part of my everyday, um, sort of my everyday activity, my everyday work activity, and then of course, social activity as well. Um, so there's a photo of me here from 2019 and then a photo of me on the right from 2022. I've, um, Today is actually 1,302 days, I believe, of me leaving, leading a zero-proof or alcohol-free lifestyle. So really what, ha what happened was uh, after, you know, sort of having my life um, in this trajectory, amazing career in craft brewing, <clears throat> but also experiencing, you know, some of the health and lifestyle impacts of consuming uh, over the recommended daily units of alcohol every day for many years. I wasn't uh, getting what I wanted out of life anymore. And for some people like myself, and you'll see this when we look at the consumer data, uh, abstaining from alcohol is one way to effectively implement an alcohol-free lifestyle for some people. And that ended up being me um, after trying almost 1,000 times to moderate my uh, consumption over 20 years, about once a week for 20 years, I would commit to drinking less and was just really unable to, to do so because I'm one of those people that, you know, it's it's one or it's none. And that's okay. Once I understood that and added the proper tools in my toolbox, I was able to implement a zero-proof lifestyle uh, formally uh, in the beginning of 2020 and have remained so since then. So that's a little bit about me and why I'm here. I wanted to create this program 
because I myself was interested in these types of beverages. And because of my background in brewing, I am a certified Cicerone. I'm a BJCP judge. Um, I taught uh, over 8,000 people courses in, around beer and sensory knowledge, um, as well as courses internally for Boston Beer and Samuel Adams employees when I was with the company for 10 years. Um, and then, you know, went on to, to teach similar classes in the hops and adult use cannabis space. Um, so for me, I really took an interest in these beverages from not only a, a flavor perspective, but when I was working in the hops industry, I began to formulate these beverages when I was selling um, extracts. And I thought to myself, like, wow, there's a lot of companies beginning to diversify in this space. And then as I became a consumer of these beverages, I would go into my favorite craft beer stores or my favorite craft beer tap rooms and ask, like, do you have any NA beer? And, um, you know, for the people that recognized me, many didn't in the beginning because I looked so dramatically different after only about 90 days of abstaining from alcohol. But for those that didn't know me as a, a beer professional, um, I think their immediate answer was like, well, we have maybe an O'Doul's in the back. I'm not sure I can go check for you and sort of dismissing me almost um, as an opportunity. I just kept thinking to myself as a sales professional on beer, like, why wouldn't you offer these beverages? Like, why wouldn't you, you know, why wouldn't there be more than an offering that's been around, you know, since the 70s? That's no knock to O'Doul's. What an amazing technology that Anheuser-Busch had. And they created that uh, beer that many still use today. But nonetheless, I, I felt and saw, you know, online just so much buzz, uh, if you will, about NA beers and other products that people were drinking that were starting to change their lifestyles as I was. Um, so I founded Aficionado. I wanted there to be a way to close that knowledge gap if you were a bartender or a brewery owner or the president of a wholesaler or just an individual enthusiast around these products, I, I felt that there was an opportunity for us to expand the category and uh, bring this knowledge to others. So we have a traditional certification program. You can find it on our website and I'll put some more information uh, about that uh, up at the end. And I'll just say in passing that um, in the next few weeks, we are releasing the very first uh, study book uh, ever written about alcohol-free and non-alcoholic beer. And that was really exciting for us because as we developed this program, we just found that there was no books on AF and NA beer or otherwise. Uh, we cited over 77 sources in our original syllabus, and that just told me there was an opportunity to add some add some context and tie together uh, this entire story about AF and NA beer that had never been told before. And as an educator, I was excited to do that. So looking forward to sharing some of those highlights with uh, with all of you today. So let's dive in. What is the definition? And I'm talking U.S. regulatory definition. There are global aspects to this, but for today, we're going to be speaking primarily about uh, the, the definitions as we view them here in the U.S. because that is the primary audience for, for this talk. So um, alcohol-free. There is a difference between alcohol-free and non-alcoholic. So alcohol-free means there, there must be verifiable, verifiably no detectable alcohol in that beverage. And it can be a little confusing because there's zeros and fives in both numbers. But in alcohol-free, to be truly alcohol-free, there must be no detectable alcohol or below the instrumentational threshold of alcohol detection, which is below 0.05% alcohol. Um, the commercial examples of this would be uh, Saria, which is Dr. Keith Via, the, the creator of Blue Moon. Um, he has gone off and created his own alcohol-free brand that is wonderful. He has a uh, great Belgian 
uh, a Belgian wheat beer example, brew example there, as well as a, an IPA that I highly recommend. Then, of course, you have some larger um, multinational examples that are very phenomenal. I was just, Andrew and I were just chatting, Heineken 0.0, Bud, Budweiser 0, I've mentioned in here, but there are some just really excellent examples of these, of these products that are out there. Um, Non-alcoholic. Um, now, this would be any beer that, um, that has under 0.5%. So anything under between 0.0 and 0.49%, so one half of 1%, is designated non-alcoholic. So this would be Athletic Brewing Company, Lagunitas IPNA, their non-alcoholic IPA, Samuel Adams. Most of the brands out there that you're going to see are going to be classified as non-alcoholic. But I'd like to create that distinction and understanding up front because for some consumers, that is um, that is of importance to them. I'll also say, as a quick aside, that commercial orange juice, bread that you buy at the store, most of these products actually have a detectable amount of alcohol typically above 1%, sometimes up to 1.5%. That's really shocking to a lot of people. I think when, you, when you're when you introducing the idea of alcohol-free or non-alcoholic beer to a new consumer who's very interested in those products or trying them, and they're like, yeah, but it has some alcohol in it still. And it's like, well, yep, you're right about that. Alcohol or ethanol is um, a fermentation process, which can occur when there's uh, fermentable sugars in yeast so uh, or any type of yeast present, and there's a lot of fermentable sugar, you can have some fermentation occur. So it's not unusual for commercial orange juice and grape juice to have a small amount of alcohol that's actually above above even what you would find in these more controlled uh, cereal or malt beverages. So I like to point that out in the beginning that a lot of people don't know that. And it's kind of interesting when you think about uh, think about how we might educate the consumer and our own teams around that. So let's talk quickly about this opportunity in the category. So why why do we care? Like, why spend our time thinking about something that, you know, relatively speaking, is still a very emergent uh, and small category? And so I would implore all of you to consider, you know, the accelerated growth rates of this category, which is really driven ultimately by changing consumer behaviors, changer, cons changed consumer beliefs. Um, I'm, I'm certain that all of us out there have been impacted and have some story about uh, our, about what happened during the COVID-19 pandemic, you know, going from a relatively uh, normal life that we were used to being out and about to sort of being restricted to our homes, that only caused a lot of changes in behavior as, as we would expect, because our lives were, were very different, but it also caused an increased awareness around health, um, for, uh, particularly for the U.S. consumer. We had a, uh, a lot of um, a lot of cons changing consumer trends, and one of them happened to be during this time that we saw interest in consumers in participating in things like Dry January, Sober October, um, and Dry July, which is what we're in now. So, if you are part have participated in those, you will know that those are dedicated months of focus on abstaining from alcohol and experiencing the health and wellness benefits associated with a reduction in alcohol consumption. And so how does that translate to economic opportunity? So in the U.S., uh, our sales volume for these products has grown to over $1 billion. And that was going to include non-alcoholic and alcohol-free beer, cider, uh, RTDs, or ready-to-drink beverages, wine, malt beverages, um, and non-alcoholic and alcohol-free spirits. The, the, a lot of these numbers don't even include alcohol-adjacent categories such as hemp-derived beverage, which is another topic for another day. 
Um, so this non-alcoholic category then with this $1.2 billion value on it and it growing at a really rapid clip, uh, we anticipate to see that continue to rise another 25% between 2022 and 2026. And for any of you that have been uh, listening to um, the Brewers Association reports and, and watching maybe even your own trends in the market, you know, we've known that there's been um, some challenges in beer growth you know, for decades now. Uh, consumer behaviors are changing. Consumer brand loyalty has changed. Craft beer had this beautiful story around it. Really, you know, for the past 20 years, it just really exploded and a, a lot of opportunity there. But COVID-19, um, you know, for any business, I think, uh, requires us to throw out what we thought we knew and be able to really look at ourselves as a diverse, diversified beverage industry that can serve these changing consumer needs. So what that leads us to today is a one and a half, a $1.2 billion category in total. So a, a smaller slice, that 78% of those sales are coming from uh, non-alcoholic and alcohol-free uh, beer and cider. So you can kind of now imagine what the actual sales of that relative to, to our topic for today are and why it's important for all of uh, your businesses and you, you know to meet the needs of your customers to understand how you can participate in this if you so desire to offer it into your business as an easy way to uh, to join in on this growth. Um, so this is going to be out outpacing the rest of Alcbev um, for the next five years. Um, we're sort of in this very interesting period of what's been called sort of despondency um, in craft beer, which always provides lots of opportunity for innovation and new product offerings. I've seen hundreds and hundreds of new SKUs of alcohol-free and non-alcoholic beer come into the market from various producers. Seen companies um, like uh, Athletic Brewing Company bring new, innovative, and novel technologies to produce alcohol-free and non-alcoholic beer, and totally change consumer perception of what beer is, where it can be consumed, and <clears throat> how it can be enjoyed, which is really exciting. So ultimately, we're appealing to a consumer that's more aware. Um, they're more aware of what? Well, they're more aware of the nutritional aspects of how alcohol beverages might affect them, and how alcohol is going to impact their health. And they are seeking an alternative um, intermittently or otherwise, like myself, somebody who leads a zero-proof lifestyle. And when you look at the holistic, um, you look at the holistic uh, category, um, I will come back to this at the end because there are some surprising takeaways from like, well, isn't this going to cannibalize my, my regular beer business? How might me doing this actually, you know, would this shift my consumers away? And I want to assure everybody going into this, that's, that's actually not the case at all. It was very surprising to me, but also gave me that confidence to move forward with uh, building a company that can serve the category because I just saw that actually this is could be um, one of the greatest comeback stories for beer ever told by uh, us as an industry, particularly in craft, addressing these uh, this consumer awareness and need. And so let's let's think about that in, in a historical perspective. So, beer being nutritional and healthy might seem a little tongue in cheek for uh, you know, certainly somebody like me who you know used to enjoy many units of beer every week. You know, many different types of alcoholic beverages, but primarily craft beer. Um, I really liked double IPAs. I really liked imperial and barrel, uh, you know, imperial stouts and barrel aged beer. From a sensory profile, those were quite complex, but. I noticed it was difficult for me to manage my health consuming that amount of alcohol because you just don't think about it when you're enjoying those flavors and participating in, in, in the sort of social design that beer really is. So let's think about that from a historical perspective because when I looked into it, 
what I remember was so quickly reminded of and what we're so proud of and we talk about beer is just this incredible history uh, throughout humanity. The beer has played such an important role in human history, human civilization, the global economic system. Um, I, I don't have to tell retell that educational story to many of you. We all know that beer uh, at the Fertile Crescent was really a reason why people went from this sort of um, hunter-gatherer to more um, agricultural early societies and people began to live tribally and near these water sources where they could produce beer, grow grain, um, even though they didn't really understand how it worked. It was really interesting. So what, what I want to emphasize here is beer is this very cool matrix as a beverage. It's got a lot of nutritional aspects to it. Um, it's healthy. Uh, it is a great uh, medium for uh, medicinal use. So back in the day, it is you know, before hops were really you know considered the primary ingredient to be using to uh, balance uh, and stabilize these types of uh, these early beers. It, you know any types of things that could be using were definitely imparting different types of medicinal uh, outcomes and benefits to those drinkers. So I have an example here of Nubian brewing. So this is like a modern day Sudan. Um, chemical analysis has shown us um, in the bones of these uh, Sudanese Nubians who lived in this area nearly 2000 years ago, that they were actually uh, drinking and consuming early forms of antibiotics, antibiotic tetracycline, in fact, on a regular basis. And being given those, uh, given that medication through beer and through brewing, there was brewing in the area and inherently by boiling plants and putting different materials into your beer as they, as they were, you know, really at that time, not necessarily always heating them up, but letting them soak in jars and letting the fermentation process naturally occur. Well, now you have an ethanol extract, small ethanol extraction. It's allowing for um, allowing for folks to really be able to enjoy uh, the, be the medicinal benefits of these things. So this is really interesting because we really didn't think of penicillin or antibiotics as something um, that we had access to until you know the 20th century, but that, that's just not the case. And uh, you know, I was like really thinking about how that applied in the U.S. Like, wow, we we really do have a history of needing to drink beer for health reasons. So how did we get to this? Uh, I, these stigmas that we might hold today. Uh, why is it so difficult to go into a place and find alcohol-free or non-alcoholic beer on the menu? When I knew other places in the world, it was actually a really big part of their business, like in Europe, for example. And I wanted to kind of understand that specific to the North American market and specific to the American market um, because of prohibition. So I'll talk about that a little bit. But from a historical perspective, we needed beer. Beer was healthy. It was delivering these amazing nutritional be benefits. It was pretty low in alcohol. And a lot of that just happened to change because of the industrial, uh, the, you know, sort of the industrial and multinational uh, corporate approach to selling these beverages. So um, this is not an example here on the, uh, the far left of the United States, but I just think it's a really good reminder of why beer uh, had such a mainstay in, in human history. You know, so not only were we drinking it for medicinal purposes, ceremonial purposes, uh, commerce purposes, uh, you know, historically for thousands of years, but as we became larger societies, we became cities, we became urban populations. Um, this is just a really great example. Stephen Johnson does a, it's a really great. A uh, great body of work on the history of water 
And I think all of us now, we, we're all really aware from a food safety perspective that things can grow in water that can kill you. And that was certainly the case um, for some of these early diseases that were being spread in urban populations, particularly in London um, in the 19th and 20th century, and that were quite scary for people. And at this time, people didn't really understand disease transmission. Um, so who, you know, there were all different types of hypotheses of why disease would be spreading and um, wh what could make you sick. And so, you know, there was sort of this really, uh, this, this fear about drinking beverages that, you know, you, you know, fear, suspicion, if you will, of like what could happen to you if you just drank from your regular water source. This really interesting story of uh, this scientist who during a cholera outbreak uh, at the Broad Street Pump, actually, you can look this up, uh, someone, his baby had, had died of cholera and they threw the, the infant's clothing into the uh, well near the water pump. And I believe over uh, several hundred people died because of this incident. And this very brave scientist went in, put on a mask, knocked door to door in this area and interviewed everyone in the area um, who could have potentially been sick and found that um, the brewery that was on the same block had very vibrant, healthy workers and they were drinking beer, not water. And he then understood that water itself was uh, actually transmitting disease. And that was a major discovery um, that enabled us to understand that why uh, these beverages for so long had been recommended drink beer, don't drink water, was, you know, even in biblical context was written um, as a way uh, to be healthy and protect yourself from disease. So that was reinforced all the way up to, you know, really until we understood fermentation and uh, the protection of micro microbiological protections of alcohol. But then, of course, it goes the other way. And then we start to see. Um, especially as spirits become more popularized in America uh, and distilling becomes a really popular way of creating these beverages. Um, we see movements, early movements um, from a religious standpoint in the United States, uh, pushing toward prohibition of alcohol, that there was the fabric of our society had changed and there was an awareness, particularly um, in this really diverse and interesting uh, female suffrage movement and women women wanting to have a voice and saying like, hey, society has changed and, you know, our families are being affected by the fact that, you know, at that time it was normal to drink a lot of, drink a lot of uh, spirits like whiskey, for example, bourbons, and um, the money was being directed that way. People were spending a lot of their time in uh, establishments like saloons where they were drinking these beverages. And then we saw uh, legislation to actually remove alcohol from uh, from Americans for you know a period of about 13 years or so, which is really interesting uh, impact on, on on the U.S. Um, and then when it came back, we sort of again begin to embrace alcohol culture. Now now we can have beer. Beer is great. We can have wine and spirits. And beer sort of always fit in this really interesting category because beer isn't a really high ABV beverage, but Nonetheless, it, we sort of kind of attached ourselves to those state, same stigmas about consumption and, and really ended up in this sort of pro, uh, you know, pro drinking movement, which is part of the American culture as sort of a rebellion against alcohol. But low alcohol beers are not really like a new thing. You know, it really started, to, we started to see them in the United States with these sort of malt beverages that were being produced to get companies like Coors and Anheuser-Busch through prohibition. But, you know, even in the 1800s, we saw in Germany, um, you know, the Germans were drinking beer all day long. They had recipes for low and no alcohol beer that many people uh, enjoyed, including children. That was part of a balanced and healthy lifestyle. 
And uh, that just what really wasn't the case in the United States because we have this sort of history with prohibition um, that really impacted our uh, sort of foundational understanding of alcohol, pr consumer perceptions and behaviors that really took many years to sort of straighten itself out. And I believe COVID sort of aligned uh, human, you know, humanity uh, in terms of them thinking about how we view these types of beverages today. So now, you know, fast forward to where we're at. Well, AF and NA beer is becoming more normalized and more understood. You know, I go back to those transformation pictures and people really taking their health seriously as consumers because people want more independent control. We have access to a lot of knowledge because of the internet. And so that consumer demand we've just seen sort of slowly upticking, you know, really since 2017 and 2018. But now, um, you know, over 70% of Americans plan to participate in months of abstinence or periods of abstinence to enjoy the benefits of reduction of alcohol intake in their diet. So it's not unusual now to walk into a large, uh, you know, off-premise account and see a door or two dedicated to alcohol-free and non-alcoholic beer. And that tells me that um, as craft producers, uh, for those of you that are here to learn about that, that there's an opportunity inherently in your business um, to adjoin that category. And so now it's how do we make those um, how do we make those transitions if you so desire? Now this is an interesting insight um, from Athletic Brewing. Um, for those of you who know Chris, he's a really bright guy. He's very innovative. And there's like this quote that uh, I saw on a website uh, recently that he said, we know roughly 50% of Americans don't drink too much at all. And 70% of Americans will consume fewer than two drinks per week. So their goal, Athletic Brewing's goal, is then to become an option for all consumers who love and appreciate the flavors of craft beer, but don't always want the alcohol. And so I just thought that was a great insight to share and something that I think is a very, a very positive message when maybe sometimes this can be considered something that's like very painful to have to embrace as a company who makes alcohol as part of um, your income and revenue stream. So I just wanted to highlight that because what you're going to find at the end is this is an amazing opportunity to not only capture this growth opportunity with your own brands, if you so desire, or just offering them as an opportunity to extend uh, the programs that you currently have inside your business. So I'm going to take now a quick transition into how our alcohol-free and non-alcoholic beers are made. So um, if you have any questions about what I've just presented, feel free to leave a comment there. I've seen some great comments so far, some people that have tried Syria. Some of them, have. Uh, one person mentioned that they tried the cannabis-infused version, the THC version of that in Colorado. I've also tried that. Um, that's a part of our material as some of these new novel ingredients such as hemp-derived THC are finding themselves in to uh, alcohol-free or 0.0, .0 beers as a way to uh, you know, enjoy cannabis in a different a way than smoking it um, or eating a gummy or something like that. So the beer category is definitely seeing some interesting, um, some interesting um, you know, changes and offerings in case, in case you haven't already seen that yourself. Okay, so <clears throat> how is AF and NA beer made? So I, I wish we had hours to talk about this because the technologies are so interesting, um, so cool, and so available. So I'm going to start with where I would suggest if I were consulting with you or having a, a, an NA beer with you and you were telling me as an owner, you know, I really see this, uh, you know, or as someone who works in a tap room and you're like, I see this as an opportunity, like how do, how do we get my brewery into it, my company into it? So the biological methods are available now. So that's that's fermentation. So you can make and ferment these beverages just like you would 
um, you know, any other type of product that you're making with some adjustments. So it's an adjusted process and, and also an adjusted flavor profile for the outcome. So just like when you started making seltzers, um, if you want to talk about similar category size, Many of you have all decided to be make seltzers now because you wanted to ad address consumer demand uh, that was created by companies that were looking to diversify because they, they wanted to keep those drinkers in their portfolios. Same here. Now you have the opportunity to make really, really great AF and NA beer using biological, real, true fermentation methods. So you're making a real beer. You're just making a beer that has a, a restricted amount of alcohol in it. And there's a number of different ways you can go about that. Keep in mind. Is this going to taste exactly like your number one selling, you know, 8% ABV IPA? It's not. These flavor expressions are going to be different, but they're going to be enough so that the consumer that's looking for that, they're, they're already expect that. They don't expect this to taste exactly like that because there's no alcohol in it. So the consumer is very forgiving, if you will. I, I'm not condoning behavior of making an any beer that's not high quality. Quality actually is... It's harder to make a really good NA beer because of the parameters. But for all of you out there that are like, I've thought about it. It's too hard. It's too expensive. I have to invest a million dollars to get into the category. I want to assure you that that is definitely not the case. Um, there are ways to scale these technologies effectively, and it does require a focus on food safety and these types of uh, general, you know, good manufacturing practices and food safety controls. But it is possible for you to produce and sell these. And if not, you can uh, you can buy and resell them from other trusted brands that you respect and like as well, if that's just not of interest to you. But let's just talk quickly. There's a few different ways you can make these. A couple production methods here I'm going to go over. You can um, we, We're going to look at, but there's sort of four I've outlined here, and that's um, changing your mashing process, arrested or limited fermentation, cold contact uh, fermentation, or using a special yeast, a, a modified yeast strain, typically made from like a kombucha yeast or some sort of yeast blend. These, these have been sort of specially bred yeast strains uh, from our same yeast producers that we're using. Um, they've got tremendous expertise, these teams do, as well as these other companies um, uh, that are doing this, you know, in, integrated in these technologies. So I can assure you already that the industry is very prepared to, uh, if you are looking at a biological method, to uh, address whatever uh, challenges you may have or whatever flavor profiles you, you want to create with your NA beer in your tap room. Um, so changing your mashing process, basically what you're doing is you're increasing your temperature. So to kind of, uh, you know, take it from like a benchtop or homebrew perspective, I, I, I did get this opportunity to speak at HomebrewCon this year on making and evaluating NA beer at home. And uh, I did. I did used a biological method. I changed the mashing process, so I did. I used both uh, both techniques to create a uh, about a, a 0.39% ABV IPA um, in North Carolina this April that we uh, took to some friends at Sierra Nevada and confirmed the flavor is great. You guys did an awesome job, you know. So it can be done. So basically, what you're doing when you change your mashing process is you're just targeting a lower starting gravity. So how do you do that? You create less fermentable sugar, right? Inherently, by limiting alpha and beta amylase uh, enzymatic activity in your mash, which means just raising the temperatures, those are temper temperature-specific enzymes, you're going to create less fermentable sugar. So, yep, you're going to have a beer that's going to have a lot of unfermentable sugar in it. So these are things you have to consider when you're building your recipe. But I want to mention that this process is available to you because hopefully it gets you, if you are sitting on 
uh, listening to this right now as a producer, you don't feel that you're limited in being able to produce these types uh, of beverages in your tap room. Um, you can arrest fermentation. So you take, you physically remove yeast when your contact time of yeast to wort has gotten you to that below 0.5% ABV. You remove it, you stop the process. Um, that can also obviously impact flavor. So just something to think about. Uh, but this is why trial and really developing your own recipe that works for your brewery and your processes is important. But that is another way of doing it, just to stopping the fermentation process. Cold contact. So typically we are fermenting, um, especially if we're making ales, right? And that's a majority, uh, you know, a lot of our craft beers are we're producing ales or fermenting at a slightly warmer temperature. Well, we restrict that temperature. We halt fermentation by uh, basically controlling the temperature, chilling the fermentation. So that slows, if you will, slows down the activities. Why it takes longer for us to make a lager than an ale in traditional brewing. Same sort of concept here. So we're just we're just uh, reducing that fermentation temperature. We have more control over our attenuation at lower temperatures, and we're really limiting that yeast activity. So that's just another another method that you can use. You can also just use yeast that are just not going to ferment. Um, you know, there's some really really cool uh, strains out there. Please please contact your yeast producers. Please contact your brewing supply. Uh, group professional if you work with them their you know their team has a tremendous amount of knowledge contact your hop producers the hop guys are becoming very knowledgeable about this as well and um, there's just a tremendous opportunity for you to be able to uh, embrace that so new and unique experimental yeast that's what we used we used a white labs yeast for for ours and it was amazing it had great flavor quality and it worked as it said it would work it was very almost too easy to do and use so um, those special yeast strains are certainly a, an opportunity. Now, for those of you that may be listening or considering like, okay, well, what if I just, I don't want that variability that fermentation is going to have because, you know, variability in an NA beer can mean, a, uh, you know, different outcomes in terms of your flavor that may, maybe you don't want. Maybe you want to have a perfectly attuned process to get the same outcome every time. That's when mechanical methods of scale become important to consider. So there's sort of two different mechanical methods. You're these are typically minimum capex investments of a million dollars plus. So you're typically seeing these in larger, very, very large breweries. So your Anheuser-Busch's of the world, your Molson Coors, Heineken, etc. They're investing in, in technologies that are going to allow them to brew a beer uh, in the traditional manner, and then we're going to remove the alcohol from it. Um, that's a very traditional way of making a non-alcoholic beer. And there's sort of two primary ways you can do that. One is going to be through uh, membrane filtration or reverse osmosis. And the second would be vacuum rectification or vacuum distillation. So we're going to distill off the alcohol um, by heating under a vacuum. So we'll talk about those methods here really quick as well. So very common membrane filtration is a way of reverse osmosis. Here, I have some slides up just sort of giving some visuals here for those of you that may only have audio. Uh, so what are we doing then? Well, we're dissolving, uh, dissolved molecules and are separated by physically pushing a liquid through a thin semi-permeable membrane using very, very high pressure. And that's going to just push out those ethanol molecules and push them to the side. And uh, now you're left with a de-alkalized uh, version of the, the input beer material that you put in. Um, like I said, kind of a slower process, very expensive, but highly accurate. Lots of companies producing very, very, very nice beers uh, using that method. Um, alternatively, uh, vacuum distillation, or what we call rectification. So 
under vacuum or under a tremendous amount of, of pressure and under lower temperatures than typically around ambient or room temperature, we're able to create a boiling process. And that's going to uh, lower the boiling temperature than of both ethanol and water. And beer will be boiled then at a lower temperature of between 60 and 70 degrees Fahrenheit, or uh, for those of you that use Celsius, 16 to 24 degrees Celsius, instead of that traditional 160 to 173. Anybody here, we all know that heat is an, a large enemy of, of beer and we don't want to do that. We're trying to produce a beer that's got all the same flavor, uh, you know, amazing sensory attributes as re our regular beers, but we're creating a beer with a, uh, a predetermined low amount of ABV. So adding heat, it can be very stressful to beer and it can definitely uh, dramatically change its profile from the beginning. So this is a great alternative. Typically what we're seeing is you then capture your ethanol. You can use that input material to make your seltzers if you want. And you're also able to then often distill off these other flavor, uh, your other sort of compounds that might be volatizing off due to the heat. And uh, as a result of that, then uh, add those flavors back in. Now, interestingly enough, what you're going to find it often then is natural flavors or other types of um, of uh, ingredients can then be used at the end of the process to sort of put back in what's been removed because when you take out ethanol which acts as a, a wonderful solvent we know right it's going to solubilize a lot of these uh, small sensory molecules that gave us all these incredible complex aromas that we've been very well trained to pick up in beer well we may be missing some of those now and i'll, I'll give you just a quick example so um it, Many of you have probably, if you have tried an NA beer, one common uh, critique I often hear from brewers uh, and, uh, and individuals alike is like, it just tastes too wordy. It tastes like wort. Like I'm just drinking something or I, I, that smell that I get when I'm in a brewery. Well, methionol is that active compound. It's actually act as a, it's a wort. It's a malt derived compound. It's active in every beer that we make, but once in the in the presence of alcohol, it then it's not active. It's not odor active. It's odor inactive, and you can easily see this oftentimes when you'll taste a a an analog of a beer and then you'll taste its NA version. And you're like, oh yeah, I see that. Um, you know, I see why I'm getting a little bit of maybe a potato chip or potato soup or a potato type of uh, sensory compound, and that that's methionol. It's it's a normal compound. It's already there, but when we're reducing the amount of ethanol, it's present. So you're going to want to work in your process then, um, depending on what you're doing to mitigate that if that's if that's not desirable for you. And for many consumers, it's it's not. For some, they don't mind it. And we'll, you'll see that very common in a lot of commercial NA brands today. But because of the, the other technologies and other natural uh, flavor and additives that you're, we're able to, um, to put in these beverages, uh, we're able to kind of mitigate against some of those. And every week I read or talk to colleagues in, uh, you know, in this process that are able to coming out with new technologies or finding new ingredient suppliers that are able to help you overcome and modulate those flavors in your beer for for really um, not that incremental of an investment, especially if you're using a biological method. So just something to consider. Um, <clears throat> all right, so I'm going to shift gears here for a minute. Um, and actually, before I do that, I'm going to I'm going to go back one slide because I want to talk. Uh, quickly about a, a new technology I, I just tasted when I was at Craft Brewers Conference this year. Um, I, I tasted a beer that was using a new uh, novel technology uh, from a company I highly recommend. I just want to give them a shout out called Sustainable Beverage Technology. And they are using a, a very interesting, what they call nested fermentation 
um, and that they use to produce, uh, for example, Deschutes Black Butte NA, which Deschutes is taking a, a major investment in the category, which I applaud them in doing. Um, that will now allow Deschutes and its analog uh, beer and one of the best recognized porters available to make this incredibly, um, you know, tasty and high quality non-alcoholic version of um, of a flagship for them. And they are going to be doing um, their IPA as well. So I just want to give a shout out to not only the SBT team, but to Deschutes, because I, I thought what an amazing opportunity to showcase some of the newer novel technologies that are coming out that are different from some of these uh, sort of standard reverse osmosis. It is a membrane filtration process, but the way that they're doing it in stages just really seems to be able to produce award-winning beers. And uh, they've got a great program that is that sort of reduces some of that CapEx outlay. So I highly recommend looking at some of these uh, companies, um, ABV Technologies out of, out of Minnesota, um, I've, I've even got some contacts um, in some consulting that are working on new and novel ways to just start with sort of a, a base uh, concentrated input that you can then just hydrate and add in some natural flavors. And now you've got a true 0.0 beer that you really just have to blend. So um, definitely wanted to put that on your radar that this is um, from a variety of methods, something we're all able to sort of embrace uh, here. And somebody just mentioned in the chat that they'd had a fresh hop in a uh, pale ale in Washington that tasted the closest to a full alcohol beer that they'd ever had, and it can be done. And um, I, I, I agree with you. And every week I'm, I'm tasting more and more things um, that are almost like very difficult to pass off as an NA beer. I was just earlier, uh, Andrew and I chatted about uh, Untitled Arts, Italian Pilsner, a great example of a beer. And I mean, almost indistinguishable from an alcoholic counterpart and just the way that they've uh, created a great base product and then, you know, added in some flavors to just sort of compensate. And I, I just think, wow, what a, I mean, I like to drink, I always like to drink beer early in the morning. I don't know about any of you, but for me now I'm doing that in confidence and living my best life uh, because I'm able to, to drink as beers that I really enjoy and love. So I'm getting all that joy and energy out of doing that. And then, uh, you know, but in doing so, I've reduced my alcohol intake by, by really not, you know, not ingesting alcohol on a regular basis. And the, the, the health and cognitive results have just been outstanding. Now, what I don't want to do uh, as a person that, uh, you know, has ties into the industry is stand here and say that, you know, alcohol is bad and, you know, you shouldn't have it. Uh, or, you know, you be careful. Everybody's life is different. Everybody's health is different. That is for you and as any consumer of anything to, to manage. So I just wanted to highlight like people like me actually aren't the majority of people drinking these products. So who is the consumer? So now that you know that you may be able to choose to produce these on your own if you wish, or you're like, I'm going to add an NA list because I want to capture this drinker during sober October. I miss dry July, but I, I know there's people in my tap room or my establishment that are requesting these things. I, I want to participate in the category. So I just thought this is some very interesting da data from the IWSR um, and some talks that I heard earlier this year. So I just wanted to share this because a very eye-opening for me of who the consumer is um, for these products. They've sort of broken it down into four categories. So let's start at the top. Uh, so we've got 40% um, of the category are drinkers that are substituters. And so what is a substituter? A substituter uh, here's a little quote. I typically drink no and low alcohol beverages on certain occasions um, and full strength alcoholic beverages on others. So that's 40% of the category. Half the category are people that are probably already, they're already drinking 
uh, these on certain occasions, but they're also drinking regular alcoholic beverages like many of you. So that's four out of 10 people there. You may not even know that this is in their sort of rotation. And just by virtue of offering it on a day they're choosing to substitute for whatever reason, um, you can accommodate that need for them. And please keep in mind that the tax base is different for this because you're not paying taxes, not beer. It's, it's kind of falls in this interesting area of the, the FDA and the TTB, but these are not taxed the same. You can carry them, you could sell them at different times, depending on the state you live in. You could appeal to a different audience of drinkers and a different age group. So I just highly recommend you look into that because this is just ways you can expand your offerings uh, to many people and, uh, you know, just look into your local regulatory or state uh, regulatory to see if this is something you can, you know, sell in your tavern and what's required of you to do that. But just how interesting, right? Like now there's an occasion to come in, drink non-alcoholic beers at a different time of day and really enjoy that experience. 21% are what they have designated as blenders. So in the same occasion, a blender might say, I typically switch between non-alcoholic and low alcoholic and full alcoholic drinks, full strength alcoholic drinks in the same occasion. So for there's probably some of you out there that are like, yeah, hello, I do this all the time. I'm going to sit down and drink beer for five or six hours with my friends. I like NA beer. I want to be able to manage the outcome. So maybe uh, every drink or two, I'm substituting in a non-alcoholic or alcohol-free uh, option. Uh, in order to sort of manage my, uh, you know, my consumption in that uh, in that period, that's called blending. Twenty one percent. So now we're at sixty one percent of the drinkers uh, that are probably people that you're already serving. Uh, and if you don't have this offering, offering, you're just may, could potentially missing out on a revenue opportunity for that customer. Next is trialers, seventeen percent of the category, and they they're going to tell you, I normally drink full strength alcoholic beverages almost all the time, but occasionally I will try a no or low alcohol beverages. These are the people that are hanging out with someone like me, who is the, the, the remainder or the 22%, I avoid alcohol completely. This is because I constantly have any beers in my purse or my backpack. And if you're with me, you're trying one because I want to introduce people to this opportunity. So this is just a, a really interesting way of thinking about how these can be integrated and what the consumer category looks like. So you know, you're really looking at over two thirds of people being someone that you're probably already serving. So this begs the question then, so is this going to cannibalize my beer sales? I would be asking that if I were a, uh, a brewery owner or if I was somebody who was responsible for the revenue of my company, I would wanna know if I was actually doing something of value for my, for my business by offering this. So here is like probably the most shocking pieces of information that I, discovered in this process because I thought the same thing. I was like, how am I going to sell an alcohol-free beer training program to brewers? Why are they going to want to promote something that actually isn't in their nature to produce? And here's what I learned. Alcohol-free and non-alcoholic drinks are more likely to recruit from soda, tea, coffee, and energy drinks um, than any other type of alcoholic beverage on the menu. So what we're seeing is those sales, like that consumer has already made up their mind. That's why you're probably seeing someone that's like, I'm going to switch to water. I'm going to switch to Coca-Cola. I'm going to switch to coffee. I'm going to switch to an energy drink. Do you know, I see tons of tap rooms and other establishments now that carry Red Bull. So you are already having that consumer make that decision in front of you. Though I, I implore you to, to explore that in your own business because especially when it comes to water, 
there's a missed opportunity. And that's an easy thing to see a customer ordering a water, not ordering another beer, and then you can immediately make an offer. You can immediately create a sampling opportunity for not only, uh, you know, in a brand you may be trying to, to produce yourself and make awareness around, but also for if you're deciding to try other brands and add that margin to you. So why not upgrade that person to a $7 uh, ticket as opposed to just that having them sit there and drink water? This is a great alternative for them uh, and creating a great experience to connect uh, with that consumer as well. One other thing that I had thought was this is the this is all a younger generation that that cares more about their health. They're more aware. They're more knowledgeable. They're on the Internet. Um, they're, they're Gen Z, they don't go out as much. And actually, that isn't true either. Gen Z makes up the, the smallest uh, proportion of these drinkers. It's the millennials and the Gen X that make up uh, the lion's share of these drinkers. These are the people that are making those decisions based on the fact that they're they're more aware and more conscious of their own health or uh, want to be in control or their doctors are telling them you, for medication reasons or otherwise, need to mind your alcohol consumption. And that, along with the notion of there being more awareness around the impacts of alcohol on the human brain and human physiology. I, if you haven't listened to uh, the, the Andrew Huberman podcast from the Stanford Lab on alcohol, please do. Um, it's just a very interesting, it's like a, a very long format, like a three-hour podcast but highly recommend uh, educating uh, ourselves on principles of mindful drinking as it relates to how alcohol impacts the human physiology and body. Um, I, I I definitely would put as a, a woman, a betting woman uh, would say that we will see a time in our career where that information is very widely available and um, much like smoking was in the 1990s, people very quickly began to understand what what the impact of smoking cigarettes was on human health. And now we're in a time where there's plenty of research, more than enough research that's been done to confirm uh, the effects of alcohol on our body. So it makes sense for us to embrace not only the category, but the knowledge and the concept of how alcohol affects our body. And by just substituting a, a beer with a very low percentage of ABV, what happens? How, how can we then implement that and tell that story to our consumer? Because it's about storytelling. So think about the, the health impact. Think about the category replacement and what that might mean to your business in this process. Um, so here in terms of implementing it, so I just have a few minutes left. So we kind of talked about some of this. So if you're th sitting there like, great info, how do I get started? I, I, I don't have a lot of time to dedicate to this because I see that it's a small category and I you know, have a handful of consumers this might appeal to. So think about those key focus periods that we talked about. You've already got over, you know, over uh, uh, three-fourths of Americans saying they're going to participate in dry January, dry July, and sober October. Those are one-month periods where those customers are looking for that. So maybe just carrying some uh, outside products to trial it, I think would be good and making some awareness around that, inviting people for the opportunity to come in and have a discussion about this and how they're feeling during that month and how much they may be look at, really looking forward to uh, to you know, coming back from sober October and drinking their favorite IPA. So very interesting types of concepts then that can be applied. Uh, so are you gonna make it? So from a production standpoint, from an implementation standpoint on, on availability, what is your strategy then on building the right portfolio? Are you going to make it? Are you going to buy and sell someone else's product? I think those are definitely part of the implementation checklist, if you will, that you need to go through. 
Um, and there's plenty of expertise out there from the, some of the companies I mentioned and, and various other companies that are inv highly invested in, in this. Like I said, a lot of it's because this is a big category outside of the U.S., right? Um, we're seeing, you know, in, in Spain and Germany, this is 13% of the, of the category of beer um, is non-alcoholic. Here, it's obviously way less than 1% still. So major opportunity for us as we as consumers are aware, and we become to adopt uh, more of these uh, European mindsets around mindful drinking and uh, how we will embrace that in our business. And then I'd say, uh, as a trainer and an educator, have you prepared your team? And that's not just being able to talk about the flavor attributes of these products. It, this is a category that is so dynamic. You've got a very educated and, and interested and engaged consumer for whatever reason. Prepare your team. Teach them the principles of mindful drinking. Implement it. Walk the walk. Offer them you know, these products to, to try and drink uh, when they're coming on shift at 9 in the morning. This is the way to really get the experience uh, translated to reduce stigma, to become more welcoming, to notice that selling opportunity when it changes. When are you suggesting these? Are you waiting until the customer switches to a water? Or <clears throat> like we do at the coffee shop, are we offering a, uh, a decaf and, and a caffeinated version? That's really acceptable. Is it normal to say, hey, are you going with uh, full strength today or are you going with NA? We've got both. And I think there's some really exciting and interesting ways that you can train your staff to upsell this as a premium opportunity, because remember, this category is going to increase in growth by 25%. For those of you that bring it in-house, could be much more than that, depending on your, your, you know, your willingness. And then knowing your customer, tailoring that experience to them. If you are you know, a tap room that's got an outdoor section, if you're a tap room that's, you know, whatever it is that your theme is, you can find or create uh, your offering to meet that customer. And I think by being a little bit closer to what's going on in their life and offering this, not only can you bring them back more often, but you can keep them there longer because you can accommodate whatever it is that they're choosing to do. I like to go to tap rooms now from the moment they open, especially the ones that are offering me, obviously the ones that are offering an abstainer uh, like me, an AF or NA offering. And I'm there in the morning working because I like to be out post COVID working in, a, in an open environment socially and meeting people. So I think that that's just an exciting opportunity. Um, all right. So um, just in closing here, um, it was a great talk. I hope, I hope it was valuable to those of you that listened in today. Uh, feel free at my information is here on the screen, Megan at alcoholfreeaficionados.com. You can visit our website. Uh, we're about to go through a great rebrand. So I hope you are able to see that when it comes up in, in the next four weeks, alcoholfreeaficionados.com and my uh, cell phone number 972-821-6983. I, I always welcome calls from anyone in the industry um, and would love to connect with you if this is something that you'd like to talk about. So um, thank you all so much for your time, uh, for your participation. Uh, cheers to all of you. Uh, that have already taken our test, been part of the sort of the early AF and NA beer certified program. And I look forward to, uh, to bringing this to market in the future. So uh, good luck, everyone, and cheers. Thank you for listening and being an important part of our community. Please hit the subscribe button to stay on top of more sessions that can help you grow as a craft beer professional. And join us for more conversations in our community on Facebook. We appreciate you. Cheers.